Uh, just one verse tonight, Daniel 2.44. We're going to be looking at several verses in Daniel chapter 2. We're grateful that you're here tonight. We appreciate so much the opportunity to be together. Tonight we're going to be talking about the indestructible kingdom of God. And I want us to look specifically tonight at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel, of course, wrote some six centuries before Jesus ever made his way to planet Earth. And it would be some six centuries later that Jesus would establish this indestructible kingdom. And so I want us to look at Daniel chapter 2 as we think about the kingdom of God. And by way of application, we today are the recipients of this great promise, this great prophecy. Because all of us who have been baptized into Christ, we belong to the kingdom of God, the church. And the beauty of that is God has promised to save the church. And so to be a member of the church is to simply be among the saved, the cleansed, the redeemed. And so tonight we look at Daniel chapter 2 as we think about the indestructible kingdom of God. By way of just a very quick overview, in Daniel chapter 2, you recall Nebuchadnezzar who was the king of Babylon. And Babylon was a very mighty, powerful nation. The Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he did not understand the dream. And so there was a man by the name of Daniel and Daniel and his three friends had been deported to Babylon at a very early age. And if you read the book of Daniel, you'll find that Daniel had a very prominent position in the court of the Chaldeans or Babylonian Empire. He would later have a place in the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel welded tremendous influence in both kingdoms. And so in chapter 2, Daniel, of course, has the opportunity to stand before this great king. And Daniel answered in the presence of the king, and here's what he said in verse 27. Concerning this great dream, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, cannot declare to the king. Many had the inability to tell Nebuchadnezzar the contents of this dream. But in verse 28, Daniel said, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. He said, your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. Now, drop down with me and look at verse 31, because in verse 31 we find Daniel as he begins interpreting the contents of this very important dream. In verse 31 he said, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. He said, This image's head was of fine gold its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And he said, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image in its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. 
And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. He said, you, O king, are king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. He said, you are this head of gold. So the head of gold would be representative of, of the Babylonian empire. And then he said in verse 39, But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours. The second kingdom that Daniel speaks of would be the Medes and the Persians. He said, Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. This would be indicative of the Grecian Empire. In verse 40 he said, And the fourth kingdom, shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters all things and like iron that crushes. That kingdom, he said, will break in pieces and, and crush all the others. And so this fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire, the Roman kingdom. In verse 41, he said, whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now verse 44. In verse 44, Daniel is now going to talk about another kingdom that will come on the scene. This kingdom, unlike the other fiscal empires that would rise and fall in successive order, this kingdom would be spiritual in nature. And so he said, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And then he said, and it shall stand forever. Now we talk about the wisdom of God. And the fact that God is all-knowing. Each of these world empires would make significant contributions to this fifth kingdom, this spiritual kingdom that would come on the scene. Babylon, as you well know, the Babylonians carried God's people, the southern kingdom, into captivity. There were three deportations of God's people, beginning in about 605 B.C. and ending in about 586 B.C. And the Babylonian Empire con contributed by way of the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues. The Medes and the Persians, their contribution would have been an empire comprised of law and order. You remember Daniel will talk, will talk about in his book the laws of the Medes and the Persians and he said that law does not alter. The Grecian empire would contribute 
a universal language, the Koine Greek. And then the Roman Empire would make the contribution of a tremendous highway or road system. As a matter of fact, it has been said all roads lead to Rome. And so you find God in verse 44 talking about this indestructible kingdom. And you think about these kingdoms that would rise and fall in successive order. And what Daniel is saying to Nebuchadnezzar is, look, you need to understand there is another kingdom that will come on the scene that will be established by God himself. So I want to begin tonight by talking about the establishment of this kingdom. And I want you to listen again to what Daniel said. And in the days of these kings, that is in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Now, note what he says. The God of heaven is the one who is going to establish or set up this kingdom. Now, there are a lot of people in the world today that are somewhat familiar with the concept of the church and the kingdom. A lot of folks do not understand that the church and the kingdom are oftentimes used interchangeably in Scripture. What I want you to see is when we talk about the establishment of the kingdom, this indestructible kingdom, that first and foremost it involved the plan of God, the purposes of God. There are some people that have the idea that when Jesus came to earth, because he was rejected by his Jewish kinsmen, the Jewish people, he failed in his efforts to establish a kingdom. And so parenthetically, God set up what is typically called the church age. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul tells us that the church is the manifold wisdom of God. And he said that it exists according to the eternal plan of God. And by the way, when Jesus was rejected by the Jewish people, that was not a surprise to God the Father. God anticipated the Jewish people rejecting the Son of God. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 53? Isaiah said he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah wrote 750 years before Jesus came to earth. And Isaiah said, speaking of the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, that he would be despised and rejected by people. So when John wrote in John chapter 1 that Jesus came to his own and his own received him not, that's a commentary on Isaiah 53, isn't it? So, first and foremost, as we think about the establishment of this indestructible kingdom, to recognize that it involves the plan, the purposes of Almighty God. Now, I want to add this. Sometimes people talk about the church being a part of God's plan of redemption. The church was at the very core of God's plan of redemption. It's not just a part of God's plan of redemption, it is God's plan of redemption. In the sense that Jesus and the church are inseparable, aren't they? Do you remember when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate 
And Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were this world, then would my servants fight. Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom, didn't he? And so when we think about this spiritual kingdom that Jesus came to establish, it was purchased with his blood. And it began on Pentecost Day. And so all who are saved are a part of the church, the kingdom of God. And so you can't separate the two. In Ephesians 5.23, Paul said, Jesus is the Savior of the body. And the body, of course, being the church. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So first I think about the church, this indestructible kingdom, involving the plan, the purposes of God. But then also the prophecies of God. Daniel talked about this indestructible kingdom that God in heaven would set up. Now I want you to think about something. The church, the kingdom of God, is not a product of human invention, is it? Didn't originate in the minds of man. But rather the church is of divine origin. God is the author of the church, isn't he? We talk about the scriptures being originated in the mind of God. Peter said, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Well, just as the scriptures have as their source God in heaven, the church has as its source God in heaven. So you think about all the prophecies that are penned in the Old Testament about the church. And you can go back and look at any number of them. But I want to call your attention to the book of Isaiah very quickly. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah sees the church, the kingdom, as an exalted mountain into which all nations of the earth would flow. And he said, speaking of this great spiritual entity, that it would come to pass in the last days. So look with me, if you would, at Isaiah chapter 2, just very quickly. And listen to what the prophet said. In Isaiah chapter 2, I'll get there in a minute. It shall come to pass in the latter days, that is, in the last dispensation of time, that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established on the top of the mountains, and he said, shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. And shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. In verse 4 he's simply talking about. One of the major characteristics of this spiritual institution. The kingdom. Seen by Isaiah as an exalted mountain. Would be that it is a peaceable kingdom. Isaiah speaks of Jesus as the Prince of Peace. Paul in Ephesians 2 said, speaking of Christ, He is our peace. 
We enjoy peace with God and we enjoy the peace of God, don't we? And so the church is that spiritual institution wherein peace resides. Now, all the great prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to the coming of the church. But then add to that, the church, this indestructible kingdom, involved the promise of God. In Matthew chapter 16, you remember Jesus, while in Caesarea Philippi, questioned the disciples about his identity. And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked this penetrating question, but whom do you say that I am? Do you remember what Peter said? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus then responded by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And then in verse 18 he said, And I also say unto you that you're Peter. And upon this rock, that is upon the good confession that you've just made, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And he said, I will give unto you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. In verse 18, he describes his spiritual institution as the church, the called out, the ecclesia. In verse 19, it is identified as the kingdom of heaven. In the New Testament, the terms kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, oftentimes used interchangeably as designations of the church, the ecclesia, the community of the saved. So, when we talk about the establishment of the church, it involved what? Well, it involved the plan and purposes of God. It involved the prophecies of Almighty God. It involved the promise of God. Now, let me ask this question. When you look at the prophecies that were given about the church, the kingdom of God, when we read passages like Isaiah chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, what do we come away with? Well, according to the voice of the prophets, the church would begin at a specific time. Wouldn't it? In the days of the Roman kings, that would be in about A.D. 32, 33, historians simply, typically say that's when the church began. So it began at the right time. It also began at the right place. Where did the church begin? Isaiah said the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2 tells us that the church began in the city of Jerusalem on Pentecost Day. Now, we know that because in Luke chapter 24, prior to ascending to heaven, Jesus instructed the apostles to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, when you read what Luke has to say, the disciples, the apostles, they misunderstood, like many people today, the nature of the kingdom. They misunderstood the spiritual nature of the kingdom. So they asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, you need to understand something. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And he said, you will be witnesses 
of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So in chapter 2, the people are in the right place at the right time. The apostles are endowed with that baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And what did they do on that great day? They preached the gospel for the first time. Peter stood before that multitude of people. And his sermon is recorded for us by Luke in Acts chapter 2. And he said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this Jesus whom you crucified, he said, God has made him both Lord and Christ. He had convicted them by the word of God regarding the death of Jesus. They knew who Jesus was. They had put him to death. He had been crucified and slain in their midst according to the will of God, right? So on Pentecost Day, those people raise a pertinent question. In light of the fact that they have been convicted of sin, they want to know, what shall we do? Now, in talking about the establishment of the church, and we're going to look at what Peter told them to do in just a moment. But I want you to understand that on Pentecost Day, the Lord Jesus had promised to build his church, didn't he? He had promised it in Matthew chapter 16. He had, told, he had told a multitude of people on one occasion that there would be some standing here that would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. What was the kingdom of God? It was the church. When did it come with power on Pentecost Day? What was the evidence? They began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. In other words, they began to speak in intelligible languages, languages previously unknown to them, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ promised to build how many churches? One church, didn't he? Jesus said, I will build my church. The church belongs to Jesus, doesn't it? The Bible tells us that he bought the church with his blood, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. As we've said before, and I think it's, it's important for us to stress it again, Jesus built the church, he bought the church, and it belongs to him. Daniel said, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. The church that we're talking about is, a, is the church that God in heaven decreed would come to pass. It is the church that Jesus promised to build. And it is the church that exists today. Right? Now, in Acts chapter 2, as we said just a moment ago, on Pentecost Day, those people wanted to know, what shall we do? One of the things that is borne out in our study of Daniel chapter 2 has to do with the expanse of this indestructible kingdom. Look again at verse, first look at verse 35. Daniel said, talking about this stone that was cut without hands, he said, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. A couple of things are important here. Look at verse 44 as well. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. 
God in heaven talked about not only the birth of the kingdom of God, but the fact that this spiritual institution would begin to blossom and grow, and it would grow in a very mighty way. So in Acts chapter 2, when we read about the birth of the church, and really going forward from the second chapter of Acts, we have the infancy and growth of the church. And we'll look at some passages of Scripture in just a moment along those lines. But going back to Acts chapter 2, they wanted to know what they needed to do to be right with God. What Peter said to those people on Pentecost Day nearly 2,000 years ago, those same words are just as applicable to us today. When we talk about the prerequisites to entering the kingdom of God, what are the prerequisites? Well, we know we have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God because Jesus said, except you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24. And the Lord Jesus said, if you die in your sins where I am, there you cannot come. We also know that we have to repent of all of our sins. Peter made that abundantly clear in Acts 2, verse 38. And then we're privileged to confess with our mouth what we believe in our heart, that is, Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, just like Peter did in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 16. The Bible then says that we're to be immersed in a watery grave of baptism. Why are we baptized into Christ? Are we baptized, as some would say, to show that we've been saved? We're not baptized to show the world that we have been saved. We are baptized into Christ to be saved. Acts 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. In other words, so that you might be forgiven. Now think about this. If we do what they did in the first century, then don't we become what they were? And what were they? Members of the church? New Testament Christians? They were simply members of the body that Jesus purchased with his blood. They were, they were a part of the kingdom of God. And God is the one that put them in that spiritual institution. In verse 47, the Bible says, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And I said that there are a lot of people that misunderstand the church, the kingdom of God. And there are a lot of people that misunderstand the relationship that Jesus has with the church. Now in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel said, look, the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom. And this kingdom is going to grow and abound. It's going to be filled with all kinds of people. As Isaiah said, all nations of people shall flow unto it. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul said he received revelation from God. He said he took that revelation, wrote it down in a few words. He said, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it has now been revealed unto his apostles and holy prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. In Ephesians 2.16, Paul said that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. 
God's eternal plan, all nations would be a part of this kingdom, right? Both Jew and Gentile, before Jesus ascended to heaven, what was it he said? Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what did they do to become New Testament Christians? They obeyed the gospel. What must we do to become a New Testament Christian today? The very same thing that they did. Now I don't have time to cover all the material that is in the outline. But there is a very important principle I want you to, I want you to think about here. Daniel said the kingdom of God would stand forever. That it would never be destroyed. There is a principle of the kingdom that makes it possible for the church to exist eternally in perpetuity. Well, how is that? Do you remember in Luke chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus talked about the seed of the kingdom, which is the word of God? As long as we have corn seed, we'll have corn, right? I mean, isn't that true? As long as we have the seed of the kingdom, which is the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the church, don't we? Even if it is in nothing more than seed form. That's why God's word is so important. This book, many folks have tried to destroy it, undermine it, circumvent it. And yet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the word of our God, listen to him, endures forever. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word, he said, shall not pass away. Peter talked about this incorruptible seed, the word of God, which lives and abides forever. That's the word of God. And so, the beauty of the Word of God is when this book is preached, when the gospel is preached in its purity and simplicity, people can hear it, they can believe it, and they can obey it. And they can become members of the body that we read about in the New Testament. Is that not true? Now, if you were to have asked the question in the first century, if you had gone up to somebody in the first century after they were baptized on Pentecost Day and said, excuse me, sir, or ma'am, I see you were just baptized into Christ. Why were you baptized? They would say, well, I was baptized to be forgiven. And then they might ask, we might ask this question. Well, since you were baptized and forgiven, what church do you belong to? What would they have said? What would they have said? They just said, I'm a member of the church. I, I, I'm a member of the kingdom of God. I, I'm just a member of the kingdom that John the Baptist talked about in Matthew chapter 3. I'm a member of the kingdom that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 16, Mark chapter 9, Matthew chapter 4, etc. Just a Christian. That's all. I'm just a Christian. You see, we live in a day and time when when it comes to the church. The church that we're talking about is the church that was born and bred in the mind of God. 
It is this indestructible kingdom. And this church is governed by the authority of Jesus. In other words, he legislates the operation of the church, doesn't he? The organizational structure of the church. He legislates our admission into the church. It all is governed by the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. Now I understand Jesus is in heaven and we're on earth. And so because we're on earth, we have to have the seed of the kingdom, which is the word of God, to know what to do to become a member of this church, this indestructible kingdom. So in the first century, if we were to go back in time and interview a man or a woman and just ask some very basic questions, they would say, you know what, I'm just a member of the church. I'm just a Christian. I'm just a member. I'm just a follower of Christ. They would know nothing of the sea of denominationalism that is so prevalent in our religious landscape today. So what we have to do as members of the body of Christ, as Christians, we have to call people back to what the Bible has to say. There's a question that I think we ought to always raise whenever we talk about the church, the plan of salvation, worship, whatever it might be. And that question is found in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, when Paul asked the question, what does the Scripture say? If you want to know what to, to do to become a child of God, ask this question, what does the Bible say? If you, want to do, if you want to know what to do to become a member of the church that you read about in the Bible, you need to ask the question, what does the Bible say? Because you see, God has clearly articulated what we need to do to be a, be a member of the church, he has explicitly said what we're to do as his children in terms of the work of the church, the worship of the church, etc. I said that we would talk for just a minute about the expanse of the kingdom, and our time is gone, but I want you to see a couple of passages of Scripture because Acts chapter 2, we have the birth of the church and then the church in her infancy, and then this great explosion. Many, many people obeying the gospel. The Bible says in verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel on Pentecost. In chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible says, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. In chapter 5, verse 14, the Bible says, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. In chapter 6, verse 7, the Bible says, The word of God spread. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In chapter 8, you remember, a great persecution swept the early church. And the Bible says the disciples were scattered abroad with the exception of the apostles. Those who were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ to those people. And in preaching Christ, by the way, in verse 12, he preached to them about the kingdom of heaven. And the Bible says they were baptized both men and women. Well, what about those people that were scattered abroad? Look over very quickly in chapter 11. In chapter 11, we find that those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. 
In verse 21, the Bible says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So why were people being added to the body of Christ in such a rapid, at such a rapid pace? I can tell you why. Because those first century saints were on fire for the Lord. They loved the Lord. They were committed to his cause and they wanted to share the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need that same intense yearning, don't we? That same desire to preach the indestructible kingdom of God, the Christ. To let people know what to do to be saved, to let people know what to do to go to heaven. I hope and pray that what we've talked about tonight has been helpful. A lot of material in a very short period of time. A lot more could be said and hopefully and prayerfully will be said. But I hope and pray that what you've heard tonight, that you'll go home, think about what's been said, you'll study the scriptures, examine the scriptures. If you have questions, if something was said tonight that you don't understand, please feel free to talk to me, talk to Brother Billy, Brother D.O., Brother George. We'll do our best. Brother Jared, we'll do our best to give you a Bible answer to your Bible question. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for the church, the body of Christ, and we're so thankful to be a part of the church. We're thankful for your wisdom in establishing this great spiritual institution. And Father, we're grateful to be a part of the kingdom here on earth. And Father, we know that you have a family in heaven and on earth. And our prayer is that one day we can all be together in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to come to Christ, believing Jesus to be exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Do what they did on Pentecost Day. Repent, be baptized. God will forgive your sins. Then be faithful until death. The promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight and you need us to pray on your behalf, maybe you're struggling, maybe you're dealing with problems in your life, possibly there are spiritual problems in your life. We'll be happy to pray with you and for you. God will abundantly pardon. Won't you come as we stand and sing?